Well, turn with me to Genesis 22. I know we ended in Genesis 21. Today, the angel of the Lord had a heyday in Genesis, so we'll be there a lot. Genesis 22. And while you're finding that text, I want to talk about the gospel for a moment. The central feature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, quite simply, is sacrifice. The shedding of blood. And I think it's a reasonable question, but someone might ask, why does God demand blood? Why can't he be just like Santa Claus and take everyone who asks off the naughty list and put them on the nice list? Why do we have to have all this blood? King David in Psalm 53 rightly says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And if that sounds familiar to you, you also hear that echo of the Apostle Paul quoting Psalm 53 along with some other psalms when he gives his poetic discourse on the depraved state of man's soul in Romans chapter 3. The fact that the heart of all men includes certain features. That there is none righteous. There is no spiritual understanding. No one seeks after God. All have become spiritually worthless. No one does good. Our mouths deceive, lie, curse, and spew bitterness. We have violence in our hearts and in our actions. We cause ruin. We cause misery. We are not by nature peaceful. And no one fears God. And so what can possibly be done with a person who is inherently unrighteous, who has no spiritual understanding, will not and cannot seek God, is spiritually worthless, does nothing purely good in God's eyes, has a deceiving, lying, cursing, bitter mouth, is violent in heart, violent in deed, causes ruin, causes misery, lacks peace and has no fear of God. There's only one thing that can be done with that person. He must die. He must die. His very existence is an affront to the holiness and the purity and the righteousness of the God who made him in the first place. And the perfect justice of God says that every single wicked and evil thought and deed and act must be vindicated. It must be brought to court. It must be exposed. It must be punished because God is just. Because of this, Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23 that we have fallen short of the glory of God. He reminds us in Romans 6.23 that the payment for our sin is nothing short of death. But since we are created as immortal beings, that death is eternal. It's not a death of unconscious sleep. It's a death of being deprived of an earthly life. It's a death in which payment for sin is continual and it's never, ever satisfied. In Mark 10, 26, the disciples asked Jesus the question that would naturally follow these terrible facts. Then who can be saved? Jesus answered, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So how has God made forgiveness from sin possible? How has he made salvation possible without violating his own justice? How does the grace of God in which we expresses itself in his kindness and his goodness We talked about that this morning. How does he express the grace of God without negating the holiness and the purity and the righteous indignation against sin 
which God rightly possesses. How does he give grace without allowing the depraved to get away with their sin? Because blood must still be shed. Justice must still be achieved and wrath must still be appeased. Anger must be satisfied. So God has a plan. It's a plan he's always had. That the Son of God would be, as Peter said in Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He would be crucified at the hands of lawless men and this would take the, the blazing and the blistering and the burning wrath of God upon himself. And all of God's anger towards sin would be spent on Jesus. God would provide a substitute for you, a sacrifice in your place. Clement of Rome, who lived during the time of the apostles, spoke of substitution when he described the ministry of Christ. He said, Because of the love which he felt for us, Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God, his body for our bodies, his soul for our souls. Ignatius, who lived about the same time as the Apostle John, he defined salvation in terms of a vicarious sacrifice. Jesus as our proxy, as our stand-in. He said all of these sufferings assuredly he underwent for our sake that we might be saved. The epistle to Diognetus, written in the second century, explains salvation as a justification of the wicked through the salvation of Christ, the righteousness of Christ covering our sin. And this is a, a lengthy passage, but it's worth listening to. <clears throat> the writer said, God gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The holy one for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else could cover our sins except his righteousness? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unfathomable work of God. That exchange, it is sweet. One early church writing of the early 2nd century, maybe the late 1st century, called the Epistle of Barnabas, probably not written by the Barnabas we know in the book of Acts, but it uses an illustration from real life concerning the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And the illustration that the author uses is the example of Isaac. Isaac, the, the chosen and miraculously born son of Abraham. And he uses this example to explain the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. And that precisely is the example that we look to tonight in Genesis 22, just one chapter away where we left off this morning. And in this drama, once again, we meet the angel of the Lord, the very Son of God, and we continue to see what happens backstage before Bethlehem. Now, to understand what we're going to see in Genesis 22, I want to take some time to, to kind of get us to the interchange here with the angel of the Lord. It's helpful to get a bigger picture of God's dealings with Abraham. We did some of this this morning, but I want to review a little bit together so you understand this is one of the most important men in all of the Bible, and so it's helpful for us. Going all the way back to the beginning of his story, Abram, his name was changed in Genesis 17 to Abraham, but Abram began following the Lord when he left Ur of the Chaldees. Basically, Babylon, if we want to make it simple geographically. God would promise Abram that Abram would be made into a great nation, that he would be blessed, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. We see this in Genesis 12. And over many years in Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, then here in Genesis 22, we'll see these promises are reiterated. They're repeated in various ways and even some of them added to. 
First, the Lord appeared to Abram when he had just recently come to Canaan and promised this land to his offspring. Later, God took Abram to Ramath-Nazor. That was the, the highest place in what today would be central Israel. And he took Abram to this highest place to look around in Genesis 13. And he told him that everything he could see would belong to his people, to his offspring forever. He told him to look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. And he told him that his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Well, some time had passed and after Abram rescued his nephew Lot from the kings of the north and he was concerned and worried one night over the fact that God had made all these promises to him and yet Abram still didn't have a son, God took Abram outside to look at the stars and he promised, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And then we get to this tremendous statement of salvation by faith, Genesis fifteen six. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He credited Abram with righteousness. Just like we are saved by faith. The very next day, Abram obeyed God's instructions to arrange the parts of slain sacrificial animals in two columns. These cut up parts of animals. The idea here is that the covenant is about to be made. And the two parties would pass through this this row of animals, and the idea here is, may I become like these animals if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant? And so normally, both parties would pass through this row of animals, through this column, so to speak. But this was an unconditional covenant with Abram. Abram would not be able to keep covenant. He's a fallen human being. And so God made Abram fall asleep when the sun had set, and God appeared as a flaming furnace, red hot in the darkness, and he alone moved solemnly through this row of animals because he alone would be the keeper of this covenant. It would not depend on man, it would depend on God. Abram would enjoy the benefits of God's unconditional promises, a unilateral covenant that said if Abraham's descendants did not get this land, then God himself would be as the dead animals. And that's not going to happen. And so, from Abram's body then would come a people and the land would go to that people. Years later, when Abram was 99 years old and God was preparing him for the covenant of circumcision, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of a multitude, showing that Abraham would be fruitful, that kings and nations would come from him and the chosen nation would come from him. God renamed Abraham's wife from Sarai to Sarah. Talked about this this morning, Princess because she would have a son from whom kings would come and the son from whom ultimately the king of kings would come. God also named their as yet unconceived and unborn son Isaac and God named him Laughter. And you recall that Sarah had laughed when she overheard the promise given by God to Abraham that a child would come. But nevertheless, little laughter was on his way. And during all of these years, Abraham's faith had been unsteady at times, like all of us. He had lied to Pharaoh. He had lied to Abimelech about Sarah. He tried to make God's promise happen by having a child with Hagar, which brought about 16 years of misery in the home until Hagar and Ishmael, her son by Abraham, finally departed, what we looked at this morning. And little laughter Little Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old, 25 years after the first promise. 
Genesis 21, 6 and 7, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac grew. He enjoyed the love of his parents. They watched him grow from baby to toddler to young boy to young man. And when Isaac was a teenager, the Lord called to Abraham and he shattered him. He broke him and he crushed him. And he made all of his dreams seem gone. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And in just a few words, Abraham enters into one of the greatest tests ever seen in all of the Bible, the greatest test of his faith ever. Now, we know it's a test. How do we know this? Well, graciously, God told us after these things, God tested Abraham. And so we already know it's a test. We understand the purpose. But Abraham didn't know it was a test. He didn't know this was happening for a a reason that that only God knew. The, The emotional, endearing terms that God uses, it must have been agonizing for Abraham to hear. It's almost like God's rubbing it in. Your son, your only son, Isaac, laughter, whom you love. The teenager Isaac had been his laughter and his joy for 15 years or so, but now all laughter was gone because laughter must die. Because God said so. The Lord had commanded Abraham to worship him, and this time the act of worship would be the ultimate test of obedience, the ultimate test of trust in God. And this worship would be accomplished with a burnt offering, and that burnt offering would be his own son. Now, the text here is very minimalist. It just says a burnt offering. This is a very sanitized, simplistic way to put this. But a burnt offering means cutting the offering's throat, dismembering the offering, burning the body parts on an altar until all that remains are ashes. That's what a burnt offering is. Now, human sacrifice was known to Abraham. It had taken place in Ur of the Chaldees. It was also part of Canaanite culture. And so it was part of his worldview, despite how horrific and repulsive it might be. And yet, Abraham's assumption here is that if God is perfectly good, then his commands must be perfectly good as well. He assumes this. And Abraham obeys unquestioningly. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, Abraham has taken along two servants with Isaac. They would have been young men about Isaac's age. Uh, Verse 5 uses the word boy in reference to Isaac. It's the same word in verse 3 that says young men. And so they would all have been about the same age. Brought some teenage boys with him to help. They cut wood. It was a lot of wood. They needed a a donkey to carry it and to carry their provisions. They walked from the land of the Philistines where Abraham had been encamped. He'd been living as a nomad. The end of chapter 21 tells us this. They walked three days journey. This is many, many miles to the specific location that God had specified. 
Abraham had three agonizing days to contemplate what he was going to do. All he had time for was thinking and thinking and thinking. And in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And so now begins the ascent up Mount Moriah. It became too steep for the donkey, and so Abraham laid the wood on Isaac's strong young shoulders. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. This is a lot of wood, and it's been placed heavily onto Isaac's shoulders. They climb this mountainside, just father and son alone, just those two. Abraham was obeying the Lord down to the last detail. He fully intended to sacrifice Isaac right on the very spot the Lord had told him. And you notice in this whole story, Abraham never expresses his opinion on the matter. He never says, but God, well, maybe you're mistaken. He never argues. He never gives any sort of pushback. He received the word of the Lord and he quietly and promptly obeyed. Abraham is humble. He's quiet. He's submissive to the Lord. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now stop right there for a minute. Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. What does that imply? It implies that one was looking for the other. What was Isaac doing? He was probably wandering around looking for, Where's the animal we're going to sacrifice? And he asked the question, Where's the lamb? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. What a poignant question. Where is the lamb? Isaac's question shows he didn't have the full picture yet, but he, he trusted absolutely in his beloved father. And Abraham gives a completely truthful answer. A statement of faith which leaves open the possibility of God providing some sort of alternative means for him to obey God. God will provide for himself a lamb. This is true whether or not Isaac is the sacrifice or not. And it was said in a way to comfort Isaac, to deflect fear from Isaac. And this is amazing. Abraham is no doubt emotionally distraught. He's focused on an intensity of suffering we really can't fully understand. And yet he takes the time, he takes the effort to shepherd Isaac with tenderness. God will provide, he says. He calls him my son, They went both of them together. This is repeated from verse 6, stressing that that Abraham walked with Isaac, that they, they were together. These must have been special moments, climbing this mountain together, the son thinking he's enjoying this special time with his father, and yet the father agonizing in his heart and in his mind. But Abraham assured Isaac of God's love. Abraham assured Isaac of his love. In verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Abraham couldn't have offered Isaac ultimately without Isaac's cooperation. At some point during verse 9, Abraham told Isaac what must happen. I can't imagine that moment. But keep in mind that Abraham now is about 115 years old and Isaac is about 15 Isaac obeyed his father, no matter the cost, and he willingly allowed himself to be bound. And this was probably to prevent a last second fearful fleeing away. 
He allowed himself to be put on the altar. He probably climbed on the altar himself. His father wouldn't have been strong enough to put him up there. Many parents have had to face the agony of seeing a child die, but the agony of being the instrument of that death is a pain we cannot, absolutely cannot fathom at all. And we come to what one pastor said is the most dramatic moment in all of the Old Testament. Verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Listen to the language of sacrifice. No longer is this my beloved child. Now this is the sacrifice. This is the, this is the bloodletting that must go to God, that God has commanded. And like an animal, he's to be slaughtered. And at that moment of decision, the moment of either obedience or faint-heartedness, Abraham didn't look around for an alternative. He didn't hesitate. He didn't beg God to relent. But he knew, and he was about to act on this, that no sacrifice is too hard when it was his loving God who required it. And so Abraham reached for his blade with which he would cut Isaac's throat. He was tensing for the moment of holding Isaac's head back and cutting hard through the neck as fast as he could. But here comes the angel of the Lord. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And now we receive instruction from the intervention of the angel of the Lord. Now we have a conversation about substitute sacrifice. And I wanted to get us to this point so that I could give you four explanations that the angel of the Lord is going to give about an effective substitute sacrifice. Four explanations by the angel of the Lord of an effective substitute sacrifice. The first explanation he gives, it must be received by faith. An effective sacrifice must be received by faith. Verse 12, he, that is the angel of the Lord, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Back in verse 1, God had called to Abraham, Abraham. Verse 11, greater intensity, Abraham, Abraham. The knife is stopped and certainly Abraham must be thrilled to hear the voice of the Lord. I would imagine Isaac was pretty excited about it too. This is, this is true faith producing obedience, showing the validity of the internal reality of Abraham's faith. That he would go all the way to this moment. In fact, James chapter 2 beginning in t- verse 21 tells us, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completely, faith was completed rather by his works. This isn't justification in the sense of being saved for the first time. This is the sense of justification in the, in the idea of being vindicated that your faith is real. Abraham was justified in that he proved that his faith would take him all the way to any obedience to God. He had a true internal reality of faith. I've heard this from so many pastors, friends of mine, during the COVID crisis over this past year when churches shut down. Every one of them I've talked to has said that once we start opening up, there's just a few families who never come back. And you know what they all quote to me? They went out from us because they were never of us. If they were at the moment of taking the knife to Isaac, they would say, all right, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. But Abraham took it all the way. He showed that his faith was real. 
Abraham, if he wanted to be a man of faith and truly obey God, only knew two things. First of all, he knew that Isaac was the child of promise around the whole future of God's chosen nation was planned. And he also knew that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He couldn't reconcile those two, and we certainly can't. But he would obey God anyway because he believed that God could reconcile those two seemingly contradictory facts. Abraham looked beyond the choices that were presented to him. He trusted that God would turn this impossible situation into something good. Now, there's two reasons that we know that Abraham looked beyond the choices that were before him, that, there were, that were right in front of him. He looked past that. Two reasons we know. First of all, in verse 5, Abraham says, We will go worship and we will return to you. He's telling the young men, two of us are going up and two of us are coming back. Second reason we know that Abraham looked beyond the choices that were presented to him, we have the benefit of inspired New Testament revelation. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 17, tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, stop right here for just a moment. All of you and me, we all have some conception of resurrection. Why is that? Because we have a Bible. There are nine times in the Bible that we know for certain that resurrection happens. It's not that it's passe to us. It's not that it's just kind of uh, normal, but it's something that we know about. Abraham's faith, he didn't have a conception of resurrection. He didn't have a Bible to read. He didn't have uh, the, the widow's son, Jesus, raising. He didn't have Jesus raised from the dead. He didn't have the, those that Peter or Paul raised from the dead. He didn't have any of that. What he had were two facts. Number one, Isaac is the child of promise. Number two, kill Isaac. The only conclusion he could come to is God is going to raise him back up. That is faith. That is faith. Isaac was in essence resurrected twice. First from the dead womb of a 90-year-old mother and second from this altar of sacrifice. And Abraham so completely believed God's promise that Isaac would carry on the promised nation of God that he figured the only possibility is that God would raise Isaac. And listen, God told him to give a burnt offering. It wasn't just that God, would, that God would raise a dead body. Abraham believed that God would take the ashes of the burnt offering and remake Isaac. Now, we should note this theologically. Obviously, God is all-knowing. He's not adding to his knowledge about Abraham. God isn't saying, whew, I'm so glad to know that Abraham's faith is real because I wasn't certain there. That's not it at all. The test was for Abraham's sake. It was to stretch him to the farthest limit demonstrating that his faith was for real. By the way, we talked about Abraham being our spiritual father this morning. He sets a pretty good example. He sets the bar pretty high for what it means to live by faith, doesn't he? Because it is in trials that the false faith of a fraud is exposed. When trials hit, the response is rebellion. If the response is a lack of desire to obey the Lord, if the response is excuses, if the response is getting angry, if those who exhort them to patience and obedience and trust, then those are fraudulent believers. 
And it pains me to say this, but Jesus predicted it. Churches are filled with them. And that's why God brings trials. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was not generally effective for all mankind. The Bible doesn't say that. It's perfectly effective for all who will receive Christ by faith because the the cross of Christ didn't didn't just provide for salvation. The cross of Christ didn't just give a potential for salvation. The cross of Christ secured salvation. It guaranteed salvation. When was your salvation paid for? Was it at the moment you were saved? No, it was paid for at the cross. It was paid for 2,000 years ago. Christ's death was completely and perfectly successful. We read this morning from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. Tell us that faith is a gift from God. This faith is necessary for the cross to be effective for you in salvation. The 15th century English Puritan John Owen, he held, and listen to his logic, he's very brilliant. He held that if all of God's purposes are going to be accomplished, then if Christ died for all and all are not saved, then Christ died a less than effective sacrificial death. Does that make sense? But since all of God's purposes are going to be accomplished and all are not saved, then Christ's purpose of saving the elect has been perfectly accomplished. John Owen wrote, quote, We deny that all mankind are the object of that love of God which moved him to send his son to die. This understanding is sometimes called particular atonement or limited atonement. Now, why is this so important? This is very important because a general acknowledgement that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins, this is not salvific in nature. This won't save you. Believing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins in general will not save. Instead, the sacrificial death of Christ must be received personally. It must be received by faith. I believe with all of my heart that I am a sinner. I'm in desperate need of forgiveness and I'm asking for the mercy of God because I believe that Christ's sacrifice was for me and it is my only hope of being reconciled to God. Substitute sacrifice must be received by faith. There's a second explanation by the angel of the Lord of an effective substitute sacrifice. It must be provided by God alone. It must be provided by God alone. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, before him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. It says that the ram was behind him. It seems to mean literally more, more like behind the scenes. It doesn't mean literally actually behind him that he was looking and somehow hadn't seen it before. In fact, there's a pretty strong case to be made that the phrase behind him was a ram is more talking about timing than it is about the location. In other words, it's a ram just caught. It's a ram that just at that moment has run up through the jagged hills and gotten caught in this thicket. It emphasizes the perfect timing of the sacrifice. A sacrifice was going to be made. Blood was going to be spilled The angel of the Lord stopped the sacrifice of Isaac because God would provide the sacrifice just like Abraham told Isaac. Now, why is this important for us? Why is timing important? You and I both, we've broken every single commandment of God, all of them. 
You've trashed his holiness. You've trashed his righteousness right before his eyes every day of your life. You've lied. You've gossiped. You've stolen. You've murdered in your heart through hatred. You've arrogantly looked on others as less than yourself. You've lusted over that which is not yours. You've neglected and left uncherished that which is yours. And so what's the perfect timing of God providing a sacrifice for you? The perfect timing is that God provided the sacrifice of Christ while you were still doing all those things. In fact, he provided the sacrifice before you had done one of them. You did all those things without regret. You did all those things without a second thought. You did all those things without a pierced conscience. And this is the glory of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak at the right, what? Time. Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How many of your sins had you committed before Christ uh, paid the penalty? You hadn't committed any of them. He paid for them, knowing fully all that you would do. While you were weak means incapable of heavenly thought, means incapable of understanding, incapable of, of escaping from the trap of your own condemnation. And while you were a sinner, In other words, while you were defined by, while you were owned by, enslaved by, captivated by, loyal to, beholden to your sin, while you were in the midst of it, Christ died for you. The substitute sacrifice has to be provided by God. I hate to say this because you don't have anything he wants. You have nothing of value. Romans 3, this is hard for us to swallow, but it says you were worthless. You had no worth. You had nothing to give to God. You have nothing of worth or value except one thing. The only thing of worth or value you have to give to God is to glorify God's wrath by burning in hell for all of eternity and showing that He is a God of justice. But there is something of eternal value that God wants. There is something of eternal value that He cherishes. There is something of eternal value that He would receive from you. And that is His dear Son, Jesus Christ. That price God will receive. So the sacrifice is provided by God in order to be given back to God. You had no currency with which to spend for your salvation. And so He gave you the only currency He would accept and that is His Son's sacrifice. Easy question, easy answer to the question, why did Christ die? Well, he died for God. He died for God to pay the penalty to God. Second half of verse 13. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Oh, there is substitutionary atonement right there. Instead of his son. It's a clear picture. God requires sacrifice Sacrifice is always connected to sin in some way because the wages of sin is death. And instead of Isaac, who fully deserved to die because he's a human being who's a sinner, instead of Isaac, the ram is given by God. I imagine that Isaac would remember for the rest of his life that God had made a way for him to live. The text tells us that he was bound. It does not say he was blindfolded. I don't know if Isaac had his eyes closed. I don't know if he looked into the eyes of his father Abraham one last time. I don't know if he saw the knife coming toward his throat. But I guarantee you this, he never forgot that moment when what was meant for him was stopped and given to another instead. 
And we would say also that Isaac demonstrated faith as well. He was a large teenager by this time, Abraham, 115 years old. There's no indication that Abraham had to wrestle Isaac to the altar. Isaac just got up. God is the one to whom the price must be paid. And I put it this way, God was your biggest problem. Not Satan, not your own temptation. You were already Satan's child. You were already, he'd already won that battle. Your own temptations weren't the problem. Nothing else was your problem. God was the one to whom you owe the debt. He is the one who could kill both body and soul. This is why in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. It's for him. It's to be given to him. I've read and I've thought about, I've even given all kinds of human illustrations for substitutionary atonement, for a substitute sacrifice, and they, and they just, they all fall short. And the sacrifice of Christ is, is really not like someone paying your bills for you. The sacrifice of Christ is really not like someone paying a fine for you. The sacrifice of Christ is really not like someone going to prison for you. And the sacrifice of Christ is really not like someone losing their life while trying to rescue you. Why do all of those illustrations fall short? Well, someone paying your bills for you is something you really could do given enough time. Someone paying a fine for you is a price you could pay given enough time. Someone going to prison for you is a price you could pay on your own. Someone losing their life while trying to rescue you gets a little closer, but that person isn't paying the debt. And he didn't plan for ages upon ages to lose his life on your behalf. And all he really bought you was a few more years on this earth because you're going to die anyway. Listen, how many lives have doctors and hospitals and safety measures and shutdowns and masks and hand sanitizer? How many lives have all those things saved this year during the pandemic? Spiritually speaking, zero. Why? Because a life preserved only to eventually die and face the judgment of God is not a life saved. It's only judgment deferred. That's all it is. No, there isn't really an adequate illustration for the Son of God leaving the glory of heaven to walk on a filthy earth, a sinful world, to die for you and into some way receive in his own person an eternity of hell the ultimate torment of God, rightly owed to you by God. And then because of his own sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Son of God, he invites you to spend all of eternity with him in his glory to receive all that he has, to receive the same inheritance that he has from his Father. There is no illustration for that. It stands alone. Only God can save souls and therefore the sacrifice of Christ was offered to him. And so rather than trying to understand it with a petty human illustration, just let it stand in all of its unfathomable glory. There's a third explanation by the angel of the Lord of an effective substitute sacrifice. It must be permanently effective. It must be permanently effective. In verses 7 and 8, Abraham rightly said to Isaac that God would provide a sacrifice. And now we come to verse 14. So Abram called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now this is very interesting here. The verb translated provide really has a double sense to it. It can mean to provide and it can mean to see. It can mean both. 
And here we see once again, sort of like the incident of Hagar meeting the angel of the Lord, Abraham has heard from the God who sees. But both can be used in kind of a complementary sense. In verse 8, when Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb, it's very interesting that the New Jewish Publication Society, their version of the Old Testament, translates the Hebrew, God will see to the sheep. Just like this morning we looked at God will look after me, now in the same way God will see to the sheep. A wonderful rendering. God will see to the sheep. God will provide the lamb who is the sacrifice for sin. And we say, great, problem solved, right? One problem. One animal is not a sufficient sacrifice. There's no sense in which it could be said that a ram is a perfect substitute for somebody made in the image of God. When God formed the nation of Israel and gave them the sacrificial system, it can't be said then either that this was to provide a permanently effective sacrifice for sins. God never said that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, the writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, listen to this, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Here it is. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, God offered a ram in place of Isaac. But you know, later throughout his life, Isaac offered more sacrifices and more. The ram caught in the thicket was not permanently effective. But did you notice how the names of this place are so carefully constructed? Verse 14, again, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And that is as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Some say verse 14 refers solely to the fact that the sacrifice has been provided. Really even translating it in the past tense. One translation says essentially the Lord has provided. And on the mount of the Lord it has been provided. But Abraham didn't name it the Lord has provided. He didn't name it the Lord the Lord has provided. He said the Lord will provide. And just so we're very clear, these are imperfect verbs. It means that you rightly translate them as something that has yet to happen. That's why it is said, the Lord will provide. And on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And while we're here, we may as well clear this up. Popular evangelicalism and especially the charismatic movement are quick to point out what is wrongly transliterated. This is Jehovah Jireh. God has provided. The more accurate transliteration is Yahweh Yireh. But we'll leave that alone for a moment. But this is ripped out of its context to be seen as a promise that God will provide. He'll provide for your electric bill. He'll provide for your food. He'll provide for your needs. It's good truth. It's just from the wrong text. Here's how it goes. And I've watched guys who do this. It's sort of a hobby of mine. It goes something like this. God is Jehovah Jireh. And he's going to provide you with wealth and health. And he won't do it in stealth. Southern preachers like to say, Jehovah Jireh is your provider. That's what they say. They miss the whole point. Listen carefully. Abraham is not giving God a name. 
He is giving the place a name. It is the place where God will provide. It is the place where God will, in the future, bring a substitute sacrifice. Which means, by the way, all the nonsense about giving God, about God giving you wealth and health, it might only come true if you go to Mount Moriah. No, the provision that God is going to give is the provision of a truly effective substitute sacrifice. This almost sacrifice happened on Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles 3 explains that this is the site of Solomon's temple. The site of sacrifice, the site of worship, where Jesus proclaimed the kingdom where he was rejected. Isaac carried his own sacrificial wood to the place of sacrifice, just as Jesus would be whipped and beaten and given his own cross to carry to Golgotha. And like Isaac, Jesus went to be a willing sacrifice. And like Abraham, God the Father willingly made the sacrifice of his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves. And in Christ's death, God would take the role of Abraham, bringing his own son to the brink of death, only the death blow would not be stopped. God would follow through to see his son slain for the sins of all who would believe in him. God spared Isaac. But in order to give us eternal life, God the Father went a step further. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, the angel of the Lord speaking to Abraham, he is the real ram in the thicket. Only he wasn't caught there. He was sent there. He came there from heaven. Can I put it this way? The angel of the Lord could have said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Take him off the altar because I'm coming instead. He's the real ram. And that sacrifice was effective. Hebrews 9.26 says that Christ, quote, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is incidentally why the resurrection of Christ is so effective. The resurrection of Christ says that the check that Christ wrote for your sin cleared and you are completely paid for. Let's do one more. There's a fourth explanation by the angel of the Lord of an effective substitute sacrifice. It must include eternal benefits. It must include eternal benefits. Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the only time in Genesis that God gives an oath based on his own character. In fact, this very oath here was the basis for God's blessing subsequent generations 600 years later, Exodus 33, 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. Forty years after that, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why was it? Because the oath he swore to Abraham. Same time period, Judges 2.1. Now the angel of the Lord, there he is again, went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, he's speaking to the whole nation, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 800 years after that, Jeremiah 11.5, God said, I confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. And so we go hundreds and hundreds of years. 800 years after this incident, 600 years, we have Moses all over the Old Testament. This particular oath becomes incredibly important. In verse 17, we see the final and comprehensive restatement of all the other times God has made these promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God told Abraham, I will bless you. Here, he says, I will surely bless you. In fact, in Hebrew, it's emphasized by simply doubling the word. I will not just bless you, I will bless, bless you. But now there's a new element added. First time we've heard this. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Into verse 17. Offspring is singular, one man. One son, one child. Some would say, well, that must be Isaac. Isaac didn't possess the gate of anything. He never even owned a gate. He never even owned land. He lived his whole life in tents. It can't be Israel as a nation. They never had that sort of dominion. Still haven't. To possess the gates of your enemies is to control the city. It is to control who goes in, who goes out. And that Abraham will have a descendant who completely dominates the gates of his enemies. And this makes sense. Because for Abraham to receive the promises that he received earlier in Genesis, where he would possess this land according to God's promise, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, listen to the specificity here, to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim. In other words, for Abraham to possess this specific literal land, God's enemies would have to be removed. Now this can't be speaking of the first conquest of Israel into Canaan. Because the angel of the Lord, the offspring of Abraham, will be the one coming to possess the enemy's gates. There was never in all the history of Israel in the conquest a glorious king who said he possessed his enemy's gates. And if you're thinking in the book of Psalms right now, your mind might be going to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, beginning in verse 7, speaks to the gates, so to speak, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. What a beautiful picture. It's picturing the gates as people. Look up, your King is coming. Get ready to open. Oil the hinges. Get all all fancy. Make sure you dust yourself off. The King is on His way. Verse 8, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Who is the King of glory? Even your children know. 
Matthew 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why have you received salvation from sin through the Lord Jesus Christ? Because once upon a time, God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God told Abraham right here in verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Revelation 5, verse 9, the church in heaven sings a song which rejoices in the final fulfillment of that promise. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, speaking to Christ, the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, if Jesus Christ was just a good guy who set an example of humility and came to a tragic end on the cross, we are ultimately backing a loser. But if he came willingly as a substitute sacrifice to die, paying the penalty for our sins, if he was raised from the dead because the payment was complete and is even now gathering kingdom citizens from every single people group on earth who will one day walk into New Jerusalem to bring their glory, to bring their honor to Christ, as the end of the book of Revelation says, in this new and eternal creation, isn't that a God worth worshiping? Where you have eternal benefits. Isn't that worth crying out for mercy so that Jesus can be your substitute sacrifice? Abraham thought so. Countless millions have thought so since and almost all of them are currently in heaven. People from every nation and tribe because God made a promise. He promised a substitute sacrifice, the very angel of the Lord. And so ironically here, when the angel of the Lord tells Abraham, I will provide the sacrifice, he very easily could have said, and it will be me. It will be me. What a great truth for us. Unlike Abraham, we can simply skip ahead to Matthew chapter 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know what Jesus said about Abraham? That Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced. Well, I hope you will appreciate that the angel of the Lord so many years and ages ago already planned to come and to be the sacrifice for your sin. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for our substitute sacrifice. Thank you for the ram caught in the thicket. The Lord Jesus Christ sent from heaven to be our substitute. We thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise for it is all due to your incredible name for your grace shown to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.